Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. All right. Welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. I'm James Paul in the Ogletree Deacons St. Louis office. I have my colleague, Michael Eckert, managing shareholder of our Charleston office. And today we're going to be talking about a couple recent developments with regard to religious accommodations in the workplace and how we are seeing employees use those accommodation requests, both as uh, uh, swords and shields uh, in the workplace. And it's kind of been an interesting development over the last couple of years. Uh, but these cases uh, were existed and have been making their way through the system before the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it's only been increased uh, with a lot of religious and political uh, beliefs and objections during the pandemic. And so we're seeing some of those older cases make their way to decisions that Michael's going to talk about in a minute. And we are seeing now in, in the post-COVID or hopefully post-COVID pandemic era, we're seeing a renewed or increased uh, number of religious accommodation requests not dealing with COVID-19, but for asking for uh, time off or exceptions to dress codes. So, Michael, do you want to talk about this uh, new case that came out of the Third Circuit? Yeah, thanks, Jim. And, and good to be with everyone on this podcast. You know, Jim, you mentioned you and I have been doing a lot of work in religious accommodations. And one thing I know we both regularly train clients on as part of our EEO training is the concept of religious accommodations under Title VII, um, which, of course, protects an employee under federal law uh, to get reasonable accommodations for their religious beliefs and, and religious observances. But prior to COVID, dealing with religious accommodations was probably one of the least likely subjects that an HR department would have to deal with in a typical work environment. Those issues come up, but they're rare. And before the issue of COVID vaccinations, most likely the area in which you would see this come up was with respect to dress codes or an employee who needed some scheduling accommodation because of uh, religious observances on a particular day. And the result was that there really hasn't been a well-developed body of law when it comes to religious accommodations. We all know the basics, but the courts really haven't had a lot of occasion to really dig into the minutiae and give clear guidance on a lot of the side issues that tend to come up. Now, religious accommodations are a hot topic today because over the last couple of years, we've been dealing with COVID and then the advent of the COVID-19 vaccines, which led to employer mandates, government mandates, and the resulting religious accommodation claims. And so we now see a ton of litigation that's working its way through the pipeline dealing with COVID vaccines. Uh, but Jim, before we talk about this Third Circuit case, maybe it's worth giving our listeners just a short reminder on how Title VII religious accommodations work and what standards employers are thinking about when they get these kind of requests. We kind of view it and we we approach these kind of using the biblical sword and the shield type of uh, analogy because employees can use religion in, in a few different ways, either to shield themselves from discipline or to use it as uh, potentially a sword to uh, get some type of extra benefit or accommodation or you know more favored treatment uh, with regard to other employees. 
But basically, the framework that you all need to uh, analyze, and you know, and and we've been working through these issues as well, is at the first step, we have to first identify, or the employee has to identify and bring to our attention as the employer a sincerely held religious belief that conflicts with some job requirement, or that uh, you know should prevent the employee from being disciplined or restrained in some manner. So it's that first. First step, is there a bona fide, sincerely held religious belief that's conflicting with some work rule or some policy in the workplace? And then, of course, uh, the employee has to somehow bring that to the attention of the employer. And then, you know, at the third step, did the employer do something or go forward with discipline or prevent an employee from doing something in the workplace uh, because of that uh, religious belief or in conflict with that religious belief? That's kind of the first step, it, but there are two. There are two distinct stages of analyzing these types of claims. Unlike a, kind of a, a regular, either gender or race, or even a disability or religious discrimination claim that's just alleging discrimination or unfair treatment just based on the fact that someone is a certain religion or age or gender or race. When you're talking about accommodations, there's a second step. So the first one is identifying, is there a religious belief that conflicts? Is the employer potentially going to discipline or harm the employee because of that religious belief? And then you have to look at whether there's a reasonable accommodation that's appropriate and whether allowing that or giving that to an employee would be an undue hardship on the employer. And so we always have to do these in two stages and first identify the religious belief and the conflicting uh, nature of that belief with regard to policies. And then we get into the fun, the, re- the real fun of this, right, Michael? Uh, is it an undue hardship or is it a reasonable accommodation? And and neither of those terms are neatly defined. And, and we're actually going to talk about a couple of cases that analyze them slightly differently uh, or define them differently. And the word reasonable is kind of one of the banes of our existence (laughs) and yours in the HR and legal world, because reasonable uh, is defined all in the eyes of the beholder and depending on someone's perspective. So one juror compared to another juror or one judge compared to a a different judge or one EEOC investigator versus another one are going to define reasonable completely differently. Uh, and so we need to prepare for that or understand kind of what the ranges would be of reasonableness. But that's that's the basic framework. Those are the basic two steps. Uh, so, uh, Michael, do you want to talk about the, that new decision? And by, and by the way, uh, Michael and I were just talking uh, before we uh, started recording this just yesterday. Recently, the EEOC filed a lawsuit against a restaurant. Right, Michael? Yeah, that's right, Jim. And, and I think you hit the crux of the matter because uh, while the law is pretty clear that you have to provide religious accommodations under Title VII, what employers wrestle with is really the the discernment of what is a reasonable accommodation in the in the religious context and what is undue hardship in the religious context. Um, but to your point, yesterday the EEOC issued a press release that they filed a lawsuit against a, a pretty prominent restaurant chain uh, out of their Georgia location. And the issue there was much like this Third Circuit case that we're going to talk about today, where the employee had requested some scheduling changes because of their religious belief. Uh, The company uh, did some things to try to accommodate it, uh, but at least in this restaurant case, in the eyes of the EEOC, not enough. And so now that will go through the litigation process in district court. But while we wait for all of this 
vaccine litigation that we talked about to kind of work its way through the process. On May 25th, we saw a Third Circuit decision that had nothing whatsoever to do with COVID, but gave, I thought, some interesting insight into how at least the Third Circuit analyzes the reasonable accommodation issue and the undue hardship issue. And that was a case called Groff versus DeJoy, case number 21-1900 from the Third Circuit. And like I said, it came out on May 25th. Uh, Groff was a postal worker. He was a rural carrier associate. And DeJoy is the postmaster general of the U.S. Postal Service. And so this case dealt with Groff's request for religious accommodation to not work on Sundays. He was a Sunday Sabbath observer, and he stated that his religious beliefs prevented him from working on Sunday, that that day was a day of rest, could only be used for worship, etc., And we probably remember the days not too long ago when that wasn't an issue within the Postal Service, at least, right? They they didn't deliver mail on Sundays, and so uh, this this wasn't a problem, presumably, for Groff. But in 2013, the Postal Service entered into a contract, and that contract required the Postal Service to deliver packages seven days a week, including on Sunday. So now we have the conflict arising between Groff's stated religious beliefs and the business needs of the Postal Service. Now, initially, according to the case, each postmaster was left to schedule for him him or herself the rural carrier associates within their post office jurisdiction. And for a period of time, it appears that the postmaster for Groff was able to accommodate, at least to some extent, Groff's desires by either not scheduling him on Sunday or seeking volunteers to pick up those Sunday shifts that Groff would have otherwise had to work. Later on, the Postal Service negotiated some issues around Sunday work with their union, and they made changes to how they staffed the Sunday work during peak and non-peak seasons. What they did was they created two lists. One list were all of the carriers who wanted to work on Sundays, so everyone who volunteered to work Sunday shifts, and then a second list consisting of those who did not volunteer to work Sunday lists. The idea was that management would start with the list of volunteers, and then if they still needed people after working through that list, they would go down the list of non-volunteers and require that those Sunday shifts be worked. As that process went into effect, Groff was informed by his postmaster that he was going to have to start working some Sundays during the peak season. Groff transferred to a smaller post office instead in order to try to avoid that work because that smaller post office wasn't having to do Sunday deliveries at that time. But then in March of 2017, his new post office started delivering on Sundays as well. So Groff again informed his supervisor that he could not work on Sundays due to religious reasons. And the postmaster there offered to adjust his schedule so that he could attend services in the morning but then still have to come into work later on a Sunday after services were over. That postmaster apparently also tried to get other carriers to voluntarily cover Sunday shifts for Groff when available. Now, this arrangement started to cause problems for the post office because, at least according to the case, there were instances where someone agreed to cover Groff's Sunday shift, but then they got injured and they couldn't work, and that resulted in another carrier uh, and the postmaster himself having to personally work on Sundays and and bear the burden of delivering the packages. Groff was eventually told that he was just going to have to start working Sundays and that he could instead pick a different day to observe his Sabbath, uh, or he was going to be subject to disciplinary action. So Groff again requested a transfer to another position that didn't require Sunday work, 
but this time he was denied because at this point, according to the post office, all lateral transfers would have been positions that were going to require Sunday deliveries. At the same time, the post office still continued to try to accommodate him in the best way they thought they could, which was to ask for volunteers to cover his shifts where possible. As Groff began to get some disciplinary action for refusing to work scheduled Sunday shifts, he then eventually submitted multiple EEO complaints. And in January of 2019, he resigned and informed management that he was leaving his job in order to find employment somewhere else that could be more accommodating uh, to his inability to work on Sunday. And of course, after that, he then sued the post office, alleging disparate treatment. An interesting part of this case is that it details the ways in which the post office attempts to accommodate Groff created hardships for the employer and coworkers, and those facts would become important to the Third Circuit's ultimate decision. Jim, you mentioned that employers often try to struggle with how to quantify or determine if an accommodation is going to create an undue hardship under Title VII. And so at least in this case, here are a couple things that the Third Circuit pointed out as possibly creating an undue hardship. One carrier and the postmaster himself was forced to work on Sunday shifts and carry the burden of Groff's religious observances. That was found to be a hardship. The post office noted that it had to expend resources to constantly try to find coverage for Groff Sunday shifts, so there was some economic cost to having to accommodate Groff. The post office noted that the postmaster had to personally deliver mail on Sundays because putting it off till Monday would have impacted efficiency and safety. Groff's absences required other workers to have to deliver more mail than they otherwise would have had to deliver on Sundays. In other words, the Postal Service argued here that the employees were having to do more than just their fair share. The Postal Service claimed as well that they began having to schedule extra people on Sundays just in anticipation of the fact that Groff was going to refuse to work. And then the Postal Service claimed that Groff's refusal to work on Sundays created a tense atmosphere among other carriers because they had to cover his work and they began to resent management for it. This wasn't just words uh, by the Postal Office. This was supported by the fact that a carrier submitted a union grievance claiming that the agreement with the union regarding Sunday work was being violated because that carrier was being forced to work on Sundays, whereas others were, were not being required to work. So based on these facts, the court noted that the Postal Service had to expend time and resources defending the grievance with the union, as well as the time and resources in trying to schedule other people. And on the sum of these uh, impacts, concluded that there was an undue hardship in accommodating Groff's religious request. At the district court level, the court agreed and granted summary judgment in, fa in favor of the Postal Service, but on a slightly different ground. The district court found that an employer does not need to wholly eliminate a conflict in order to, an, to offer an employee a reasonable accommodation, and that imperfect accommodations, such as the ones that the Postal Service had given to Groff, like finding volunteers to cover the shift when possible, were a reasonable accommodation under Title VII. The district court also determined that the Postal Service proved that its accommodation of Groff created an undue hardship. Where the Third Circuit took a slightly different approach was that it disagreed with the district court regarding whether an accommodation that did not completely eliminate the conflict with the religious observance or practice could constitute a reasonable accommodation. 
the circuit court found that a legally sufficient accommodation under Title VII's religious discrimination provision is one that eliminates the conflict with religious practice and the job requirement. Interestingly, the circuit court recognized that there's a bit of a split here among the courts on this issue. The opinion points out that the Second Circuit, the Fifth Circuit, the Sixth Circuit, the Seventh Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, and the Eleventh Circuit each appear to require that a reasonable accommodation must completely eliminate the conflict with an employee's religious observances. But the court noted other circuits, including the Fourth Circuit, Eighth Circuit, and Tenth Circuit, which have found that to reasonably accommodate means that you do not have to offer something that totally eliminates the conflict with the religious belief in all circumstances. But in the Third Circuit's view, the reasoning of these other courts merged the concept of reasonableness with undue hardship, which the Third Circuit said are separate inquiries. So ultimately, the Third Circuit found that an accommodation is a reasonable accommodation only if it completely eliminates the conflict with the employee's religious observances, and that shift swapping or paid leave might be an accommodation in some circumstances where it completely eliminates the conflict, but it's not going to be considered a reasonable accommodation in those circumstances, like here with Groff, where it doesn't completely eliminate the conflict with the religious belief. And that was really the issue with with the Postal Service's attempts to accommodate Groff, because they were able to find volunteers sometimes to cover his shifts. They offered to give him Sunday mornings off to go to religious services, but none of those things completely eliminated the conflict with his sincerely held religious belief that he could not work on Sundays because that was designated as a day of rest. Jim, do you have any thoughts on this this uh, Third Circuit approach and, and whether there is that distinction between reasonable and undue hardship or if those two things are, are conflated here by, by employers? Yeah, it's interesting. And by the way, so I, I, I practice both in Missouri and Illinois. So I have one leg in the Eighth Circuit and one leg in the Seventh Circuit. And I got to worry about two different tests or standards to some extent. And, and Michael and a lot of you are dealing with... Uh, locations and workplaces in different states. And so we we expect the United States Supreme Court, it may be three or four years from now, but we expect the United States Supreme Court to eventually give us better guidance uh, across the entire country and one test because of all of the religious accommodation requests that we've seen. We've seen probably 10 times as many objections to the COVID vaccine as we had seen to uh, other vaccine requirements, a lot of healthcare uh, organizations have been requiring annual flu vaccines for years or even uh, a decade or more. Um, but the COVID vaccine definitely came with a lot of extra uh, objections and accommodation requests. And so there are a lot of discrimination charges and cases out there. And, and, and one thing too, Michael, that I wanted to make sure and n- note for everybody uh, on, on this podcast I didn't hear you or the Third Circuit really talk about Mr. Groff's religious beliefs and whether they were sincere or not. Uh, Was there any discussion about analyzing that or how did the court approach that first step of is there even a sincerely held religious belief? Yeah, Jim. So this will come as no surprise to you because I know you and I have both been telling this message to clients for a couple of years now, but courts are really reluctant and loath to get into a question of whether a stated religious belief is sincerely held. Um, you will find some case authority out there, but that was not the crux of the discussion in this third circuit case. And most courts like this 
Third Circuit opinion, are going to presume that the employee's stated religious beliefs are sincerely held. Uh, so except maybe in extraordinary circumstances, just assume for the sake of argument that it's a sincerely held religious belief and move on to the process of determining, can you reasonably accommodate it? Is there a reasonable accommodation that's available? And then the final stage, which is ultimately where the Postal Service won in the Groff case, is would that reasonable accommodation create an undue hardship if we were to have to give it? And so that's where the Third Circuit ultimately landed. They said, we're not going to worry about whether it's a sincerely held religious belief. We disagree with the district court that the Postal Service provided a reasonable accommodation because it didn't completely eliminate the conflict. But if there's an undue hardship in accommodating this guy, then you don't have to give a reasonable accommodation. And here, the Third Circuit looked at those factors I mentioned earlier, the fact that employees were getting disgruntled because they were having to do more than their fair share. The Postal Service was having to spend some amount of effort and and monetary expense reshuffling the schedules and trying to get volunteers to cover Sunday shifts. There were operational impacts and efficiency impacts and things of that nature. And that's ultimately where the Third Circuit said, hey, under Title VII, if there's anything more than a minimal uh, cost to the employer in, in, in granting the accommodation, that's an undue hardship. And what the Postal Service has put in front of us more than creates an undue hardship in our mind. Yeah. And that's exactly that's exactly the point that I wanted to kind of start with and talk about some of these practical takeaways and tips, because similar to the disability accommodation context that a lot of you also deal with, we are expected, you are expected to almost automatically assume that there's a sincerely held religious belief or a disability if it's a disability accommodation request or situation. And so we put all of all of the work and effort and energy into figuring out, one, is there an accommodation uh, that can be done and would that be an undue hardship? And, and Michael, you asked, does this really matter or what the Third Circuit did versus some of the other circuits have differing uh, ways of approaching this? I think at the end of the day, they still come to the same end result, right? So there's a lot of semantics, a lot of trying to define reasonable or define accommodation or define undue hardship. I think the courts take a fairly practical approach and usually would come out the same way, the same end result, regardless of exactly how they get there. They they kind of take a common sense approach of, you know, does this make sense? Is it reasonable? Can an employer uh, accommodate in this way? Is it going to cause extra costs or burden on the employer or on coworkers? You know, a lot of these cases also focus on, you know, not just a cost or a burden on the employer, the company, the organization itself, but how does that impact either morale or the actual work of other workers, other employees? And if other employees are being forced to take on extra burdens or extra shifts or always work weekends, then that's potentially going to, uh, be enough to demonstrate an undue hardship. But before we leave the whole sincerely held religious belief that conflicts with a policy or rule, I do think it's still important to really look at what the employee is saying is the religious belief. And I'll give you an example with regard to this working on Sundays. If, for instance, an employee says that they want or need to attend church services or prayer services, on a Sunday and can't work during that period of time, whether it's Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon or Saturday 
afternoon or evening uh, or Friday evening, w- whatever time those services are or um, festivities uh, that an employee wants to attend or participate in, that's different from saying that my religion, my beliefs, the doctrine of my church says that I cannot work on Sundays. So those are two different beliefs. Those are two different uh, needs and the results might be completely different. So if an employee is really articulating or can only articulate a need not to work during church services, uh, you know, to be able to go to and from and participate in church services or prayer groups, that's different. And that's potentially more uh, manageable for an employer than saying, I can't work weekends or I can't work from, uh, you know, sundown on Friday evening to uh, sundown on Saturday evening, uh, any weekend, anytime throughout the entire year. Uh, Those are two different requests. And so not only could we potentially look at, you know, is that the actual, what is the belief or what is the the request or the need of the employee? So we look at that a little bit, but regardless, we get to the same place. If, if it's that I can't work at all weekends or I can't work at all Sundays, that's going to more likely be an undue hardship than I just need off, you know, until noon on Sunday, for instance. Right, Michael? Yeah, that's a good point, Jim. And, and and you see that a little bit in this Third Circuit case, because I think one of the supervisors, you know, the misstep that perhaps that supervisor made is where Groff transferred to another post office. And when the when the Sunday work became a conflict again, that supervisor's inclination was to say, hey, I'll give you off Sunday mornings so that you can go to church, but you got to come in after services and, and work the rest of the day. And I suspect, we don't know from the case, but I suspect that in the in the supervisor's mind, it's probably not a thorough understanding of what the employee was saying was the actual religious belief or religious observance at issue. The supervisor's assuming that, hey, this is a this is a religious, faithful person that wants to be able to go to church in the morning, but nothing stops them from being able to work in the afternoon. But what the employee was really saying was, I have a deeply held, sincerely held belief that Sundays are the Sabbath and that God forbids work on Sundays and that's to be observed as a day of rest, whether that's in the morning, evening, or, or in between. And so to your point, you have to understand what is the religious belief or the observance that the employee is putting into issue in the request, and then analyze your accommodations and undue hardships on that basis. And of course, sometimes that's a moving target. So you all have seen, we've seen uh, where an employee says something, you know, on the first request. Uh, and then when you respond or say, okay, well, you can work Sunday afternoon or you can work, you know, Saturday morning, then all of a sudden the request or the religious belief or the medical condition, uh, because we've seen hybrid, hybrid requests, right, Michael, where someone either starts with a religious or starts with a medical excuse when that doesn't work or get them exactly what they want or need, then they switch to, uh, the other one. Uh, now it's religious or now it's medical or they change what their religious belief is. So all, all of these things make that more complicated. Again, uh, at the end of the day, Michael and I look at these as, okay, let's get past that or let's assume that you know we might have to at least consider accommodation. Is it going to be an undue hardship? Is it a reasonable accommodation? And we just in the last month, uh, we've seen an increase in requests for time off, exceptions to dress codes, uh, exceptions to safety uh, 
safety protocols and safety uh, gear. So even though we saw some of these before COVID, COVID certainly brought this to the attention of a lot more people uh, and more of your employees are well aware of, you know, different uh, political movements, religious movements, objections in, in the COVID-19 context, whether it was masking or testing or uh, vaccinations and you know, different safety protocols that came into play with that. And so now, again, employees, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly are using religious beliefs as, you know, either uh, a sword or a shield in the workplace to get out of working mandatory overtime on the weekends or to not have to wear certain things in the workplace. And it, it can become a safety issue. It certainly is going to become a morale issue uh, when employees are asking for uh, you know, different treatment from their coworkers. And so we've seen a rise in that, you know, n- not COVID related at all, but we definitely know that it that there's an increase in these types of requests. There's more education with regard to employees on what their rights are or might be. Uh, the internet and social media is a great thing, right? It, it's educating your workforce uh, in ways that we've never seen before. And certainly the last couple of years is no, uh, uh, no, no different from um, what we've seen. Yeah. And, and, and again, I think we're going to see uh, the courts working through these issues in more detail. And so as, as more cases come out, I think employers are going to have a little bit more clear vision for how you walk that road between reasonable accommodation and undue hardships. And, and that was one of the interesting things to me that came out of this third circuit case that, that if I were to, to give a takeaway for employers of, you know, how do you incorporate this into your, your accommodations process going forward is, is that, you know, at the end of the day, as you said earlier, Jim, most of these come down to determining whether an undue hardship is created by giving whatever accommodation would eliminate the conflict. And the Third Circuit's analysis here, I think, really highlights the fact that, number one, the standard for undue hardship under Title VII is just much lower than it is under the ADA. You're looking for a minimal cost, not a substantial cost, um, as, as is the case under the ADA. But number two, the court reemphasized, I think, in this opinion that an undue hardship can be created not just from financial costs, um, but other types of impacts or costs that may be harder to quantify. You know, I'm thinking here of the the notion that employees were getting disgruntled, loss of of efficiency in the workplace, um, the union grievance and and the 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 time away uh, from the business operation that it took the Postal Service to deal with that. And, and I think employers too quickly when they go through undue hardship, maybe are, are tempted to give lip service to whether there's an undue hardship, but don't pause and take the time to really take an inventory of, okay, if we were to give this accommodation, what would be the undue hardships that we'd be relying on? And, and how do we document those up front, if appropriate, to make sure that the record is clear that these are the things that we are worried about if we give this accommodation. So, you know, if employee morale is an issue, um, is it enough to just say, we think employees are going to be disgruntled if, if we give this accommodation or do you do something more? You know, do you make sure that you start to document an inventory when these morale triggered issues start to surface to HR so that you have a record to show a court that, look, we're not just saying this, this really was taking a drag on, on our employees. 
Yep. We we know that the courts and the EEOC is going to be swayed by or impressed by actual uh, actual statistics or anecdotes or documentation with regard to hardship or operational burdens. But what they're not going to accept is speculation or hypothetical, oh, well, we think it's going to be hard on other employees or, or we don't think other employees are going to swap shifts. Well, you don't know unless you've tried. And if it can't work or doesn't work or if it costs you anything more than a minimal amount, then that's going to be ammunition to say this is an undue hardship, but point to you know some pretty specific facts. Uh, it's not going to be a high burden, but it can't be just mere... Uh, speculation or imagination, right, Michael? Yeah. And I think, I think what maybe also uh, reinforces that point, Jim, is that if you look at this Groff decision, there was a dissent uh, and the dissent's view of this case was that, look, to be an undue hardship, it has to be an undue hardship on the business, not coworkers, but the business. And I think the judge's concern and the dissenting opinion wasn't that issues with employees couldn't create an undue hardship. In other words, you know, employee resentment. I don't think the judge was saying that that can't be an undue hardship, but the judge was saying that he wanted to see the record more developed than it was in this case as to why the employee resentment, the hardship on the employees was translating to a hardship on the business, that it's not enough just to say there's a hardship on the employees. And, and to me, that really underscores the point that if you're going to rely on undue hardship, particularly on those intangible things like employee resentment, employee fatigue, you're really better served by having a record, something that you can use to demonstrate that this dynamic with your workforce is actually impacting the business in some way beyond mere speculation. Yep. And as these cases um, get these decisions get issued as we get further guidance from the EEOC, which we will. There, we're again. It's going to take several years before we get really definitive uh, answers. But Michael and I uh, plan to update you and to you know continue continue podcast to help you understand and deal with these issues. And you know, there's going to be some takeaways also in the disability medical context, but specifically these religious accommodation requests that we are seeing a drastic increase. Uh, in with regard to employees making these requests. So uh, hang in there, stay tuned, and we will keep you updated. But uh, with that, good luck. And uh, let us know if you have any uh, interesting issues that pop up in your workplace with regard to religious accommodations. We'd love to hear that as we're tracking all of these cases and uh, are able to share that with all of you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.